Welcome back to The Daily Drum on WHUR, Sirius XM, Channel 141, 96.3 HD2 and 98.3 FM. This is the Inside Segment. I'm Harold Fisher. Is generational wealth in the black community becoming a pipe dream? Is affording a college education getting in the way? And what about home ownership? Historically, it's been one of the major factors in passing on black wealth to the next generation. But are things beginning to change, to move in the opposite direction? Well, tonight, we're looking at this issue and what can be done about it. My guests are Dr. Gerald Daniels, Associate Professor of Economics here at Howard University, and Ronald Clarkson, Director of Communications and Outreach for Housing Counseling Services, Incorporated. Lines are open. Give us a call. I know you want to talk about this one. 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. You can X me at H Fisher W-H-U-R, or find me on Instagram at Harold T. Fisher. Ron, good to see you again. Dr. Daniels, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Daniels, I'm, I'm going to start with you kind of paint a picture of what is happening right now, particularly as it relates to the impact of student loan repayment on black generational wealth. Now, that's a very complex question. Um, so I'll begin with stating that there's about $1.78 trillion in student debt outstanding spread across around 40 uh, million borrowers. Now, when it comes to student debt, it's a mixed bag. Student debt also, uh, gives you access to pursue higher education, which is going to allow you to pursue high levels of income. Now, where it really becomes a challenge is when folks are not completing their degree. When you don't complete your degree, you go, you go to a degree granting program or some sort of technical school and you don't finish. And this is additional weight for you to carry. Again, it's going to be harder for you to, to buy a house, less likely that you're going to become an entrepreneur. Um, in general, student debt has been linked to delayed home ownership. But again, it's not always clear that's strictly going to be a bad thing because it is also an investment in your future and also an investment into pursuing higher levels of income. But whether you graduate or not, and we as as a parent, we would hope that our children do graduate <laughs> without a question. But but with that with that said, the 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 modern college student in, in 2023, whether they go to a, a public university or a private university, if they have student loans, they could come out with as, as little as $50,000 and in some cases as much as $100,000 worth of student loans to repay. And they would have to have one heck of a job coming out one way or another just to be able to afford to repay that, particularly now that that student loan repayment pause is over. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, but I guess the one thing I would want to point out is if you were to line up, to pe- line up people from the lowest amount of debt to the highest amount of debt, uh, the person right in the middle has around $25,000 of debt or less. So even though, yes, debt can be very, very uh, cumbersome, especially for folks who are going to private schools or going to uh, get pursue graduate degrees. Actually, most people actually accrue most of their debt in do- doing their graduate studies, at least when you're talking about very high levels of debt. So, yes, it's definitely going to be a challenge for those who have low levels of debt. There are some, I guess, silver linings here. First, there are a lot of different uh, repayment programs that are available to you. 
Um, one thing I would like to definitely point out for folks who are restarting their, their student loan repayments, checking out studentaid.gov forward slash loan simulator. So you can sort of see what your expected payments are going to be. You can see what, what your different options are going to be. You can see if you have financial hardships and different challenges, what you can do. I ultimately agree that student debt is a is a burden for those who, who have it. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of options to be able to navigate these very challenging waters. Mm-hmm. Ron, what about housing? Right now, we're talking about mortgage rates with good credit hovering around 8%. I cannot believe that uncomfortable number. What does that mean for first-time homebuyers? Let's say they don't even have student loan debt, but they've got some decent jobs, you know, a a young person or maybe a young couple. But 8% for, for a mortgage, that seems untenable in some cases. I hear you. Um, one thing that I, for me, the perspective has changed. Because when I came along, interest rates were significantly higher when I bought my first home. Uh, My first home, the interest rates had come down to 11%. Okay, so they were above that previously. Uh, Granted, we're talking about 30 years ago. Okay. (laughs) For those of us of a certain age. uh, A lifetime ago for (laughs) me, right? right. Um, But uh, so the perspective has changed a great deal. And so one has to be mindful of the fact that to make this process doable, um, regardless where you are, you've got to look at your own personal financial circumstances, see if you have liquidity, if you have money that you can set aside, cash that you can set aside and do so over a period of time. Now, given interest rates a little higher, that time may need to, may need to be a little longer to set that money aside. A person may need to do some saving over a longer period of time so that they can have the funds available to facilitate the purchase of a home. That that savings breakdown compared to again as you said some 30, you know, 30 years ago, 30 years ago we didn't have cell phone bills. We didn't have to worry 30 years ago about cable bills. It there were so many factors that were not in play then that were impe- that are now impediments to saving. Well, I'll have to mention something in that I've been in this business of housing counseling for about 18 years mm-hmm. and um, I've been following housing for a longer period of time than that because my father was in real estate as well. He was a broker. And I knew back then that people spent as much as they had at that time. Granted, it wasn't on the same types of services that we're paying for now, but they had other things that they were spending money on. So the dilemma is still there. It was there then, it's there now. It's a matter of how you manage the money you do have. Mm-hmm. 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. We are talking about student loans, home ownership, and the challenges of generational black wealth. If you have a comment or a question, give us a call. Lines are open at 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. Ken, calling from Upper Marlboro, what's your comment? What's on your mind? My, my comment is every, every time we get a platform 
and we talk about generational wealth, the one thing that gets missed out of all of this is no one pursuing uh, reparations. Reparations is so huge, and it's almost like it, it, it doesn't even exist anymore um, with the issues of some of these red states that are out here or completely trying to wipe out black history. That's where our generational wealth exists if we would actually pursue it. So, Ken, so Ken let, me, let me, I got to stop you there. I think your point is, is an important one, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. Because that, you know, right now, you're talking about pursuing reparations. It has not happened yet. It may not happen tomorrow. But this conversation is about what is happening right now and what a, a consumer and a family has control over right here, right now. Definitely the reparations conversation, uh, while germane, it is not germane to, to tonight's conversation. But please, I, I, I encourage you when we do talk about it to definitely call back. 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. William calling from Hanover. Thanks for calling, William. What's on your mind? I had two points to address both issues. One, college. College is a great thing, but I look at it like this. If you're not going to school to be a specific field like doctor, scientist, something where you can really make money, I don't understand how people are going to pay those debts, earn a decent living, and get a house to raise a family with the interest rate. I have friends that owe $200,000 undergrad because they went to nice schools and it's no way that they're going to pay that off with the money that they're making secondly as far as the housing if you're not trying to live in a bad neighborhood there's no way you're going to afford a house for $650,000 $700,000 with the child support in these nice neighborhoods with 8% interest it's not going to happen hmm. Uh, William, thank you so much. Uh, your your thoughts about what he said, Doctor Daniels? He, I think he makes some some interesting points that a lot of people are concerned about. I definitely think you definitely make some great points, William. Uh, your major choice definitely can matter, and also the school you choose to attend definitely matters. So if you go to a university for your undergraduate degree and you end up with two hundred thousand dollars in debt in a field where you can't repay that debt, that will be a big challenge. And so making these decisions early on before you are accumulating high levels of debt of choosing what school makes the most sense for you, um, it's really important to do your research to understand what your field is expected to pay. Uh, when you get out uh, of, of college. And one reason why, again, I was advocating for looking at the uh, the, federal, the uh, federal student aid website is it does give you a forecast for what you're expected to make at a particular institution. So it's a good way to sort of see what's the median person, again, the person right in the middle, what are they making? And it will allow you to make a better and more informed decision of what school you should go to and exactly how much debt you should acc accumulate. There's nothing wrong with going to a very affordable public university that gives you a high return. There are many public universities that actually perform very, very well compared to their private counterparts. Mm -hmm. Ron, you know, and full disclosure, I mean, every time you come on the show, I always say this, you and I have known each, we've been friends for decades. And you, in my opinion, out of all of the guys, you did the really smart thing when it came to 
a plan regarding home ownership. Kind of share what you did, you know, way back in our Flint, Fred Flintstone days. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm not going to claim that. <laughs> but um, I will say that, you know, for me, it, uh, it was a personal journey and one that did start at the dinner table where my parents passed on to me, of course, values, but they tried to educate me as well. And as I mentioned, my father was in real estate. I learned a great deal about the process and during that and uh, those discussions across the dinner table, um, taking time to establish a nest egg, some savings. Um, I stayed home far longer than many of my friends did. Longer than all of us. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, that, and that's, I mean, that was just a fact. You, mm -hmm. you you stayed home. We moved out. But go ahead. Yeah. And when I say home, yes, I stayed with my parents far longer than most folks did in my um, that I came up with. Um, and by coincidence, my wife had done the same thing. And as a result, when we brought our resources together, we both had nest eggs that we could rely on. Uh, we both, yes, were college educated and came out of our um, educational experiences with no debt. Um, back then, you know, tuitions were significantly less, um, and I had scholarships. Her parents worked overtime to pay for her education, um, and so we didn't have that burden. You know, we, we realized we were blessed in that regard. Um, but bringing together our nest eggs, we were then able to buy a home within six months of getting married. You know, so we didn't spend a whole lot of time in the rental situation not together. Um, I had rented for a few years before we met, um, still saving some funds. But, you know, bringing that and those nest eggs together and then having the forethought to recognize that home ownership was going to be a major priority for us. We didn't want to spend that nest egg on anything else. So before we decided to go buy expensive cars or anything like that, we said, let's take that money and buy a home um, because we didn't want to waste it on something else. And um, and so we were able to do so. But then even our choice of home and where it was located, the cost of it, we recognized that, you know, it was going to be um, something that wasn't we, we weren't going to try to buy the mansion right away. We were going to work our way up. I knew through my my experiences that I had learned, I guess, through my father was that people start with something smaller that they can afford. And then hopefully if they're able to do everything right, they can take money from that home and invest that into a larger home later on. And that was the path that we took. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we you know saved that money, invested in a small home to begin with. And then when we felt the time was right and we happened to get into a right uh, timing bracket in terms of the interest rates and everything. We sold that home and bought another home. And so thinking long term and recognizing that cash, um, yes, you know, there's inflation, all of that. But in general, cash is not going to lose a lot of value. So you need to find a way to set it aside and then have the discipline not to touch it. Mm -hmm. And that's a big one that I'm wrestling with now with, you know, my, one of my children right now and having the discipline not to touch it. And then if you can establish that discipline or come up with some tools to help you do that, and there are many financial um, possibilities to help with that, then by all means, set that money aside and then go to the next level with it. No champagne dreams on beer money. Absolutely. You know, now Absolutely. it's Dom Perignon for one. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Is it more like Heineken, right? One one thing I will say is that my wife and I have often talked about the fact that since we've been married, we've never owned a brand new car. Yeah. It's always been used. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, trying to live on that beer money. Hey, there it is. There's something something to think about. Sean from Clinton, Maryland. Angela from Mitchellville. Stanley from D.C. Stay with us. Do not hang up. We're going to be talking to you next. The Daily Drum will continue on Sirius XM Channel 141. I'm Harold Fisher. John Mons is next with the original Quiet Storm. That's on WHUR. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Welcome back to The Daily Drum on Sirius XM Channel 141. I'm Harold Fisher. We continue our discussion about student loans, home ownership, and the challenges of generational black wealth. My guests are Dr. Gerald Daniels, Associate Professor of Economics here at Howard University, and Ronald Clarkson, Director of Communications and Outreach for Housing Counseling Services Incorporated. Lines are open. Give us a call at 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. Before we go back to the phones, Dr. Daniels, your thoughts about what Ron just shared with us about the the personal economics and planning for for this black generational uh, wealth journey. Yeah, I echo uh, everything that Ron said. Um, I think it's really important to understand the financial assets that are available to folks right now. Um, we're in a high interest rate, we're in a relatively high interest rate environment to where we've been in the last ten or so years. There's lots of ways to save now that are very innovative. You can buy bonds. You can you can uh, get high interest rate uh, savings accounts. And so I think all these things are going to give additional access to home ownership, even considering the fact that interest rates are very high. Um, a lot of these conversations are are more likely to center around at least at the dinner table around uh, find, buying a house that you actually can't afford, uh, maybe a little bit lower than what you expected to buy in terms of your price point. But um, if you're really saving nowadays and really focused on that, that big picture, I think there's a l- really a lot of innovative tools that you can use to save your money and to accumulate a lot of wealth in this time period. Let me go back to the phone lines, 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. Stanley calling from D.C. Thanks for calling, Stanley. What's on your mind? Yeah, I was just curious, you know, why it's so hard for low-income people to buy a house? You can rent a car, you can buy a car. But you can't move the house. If you don't make the payment, the house will still be there. Yeah. Your thoughts about that, Ronald? Well, in terms of make, keeping the house, you know, there are programs out there, foreclosure prevention, things like that, that provide a lot of options to people that sometimes uh, lower-income uh, folks who have um, lesser in terms of um, experience in in this field because a lot of that uh, that transition of generational black wealth is also passing along generational education is letting people know that there are options out there and so that's one thing that we need to do but in terms of buying that home in the first place also having that generational knowledge to transition to the next generation i always tell people when i'm doing my housing counseling is that you know if you can invite the young people in your home to participate in the discussion so that they can learn from this opportunity that you're trying to take advantage of in dc we've got programs to help where we We've got down payment assistance programs that can provide up to $200,000 to help buy a home. 
Uh, we've got programs that identify housing that costs less than market rate housing through the inclusionary zoning or the affordable dwelling unit program. And all of these programs are available here in the District of Columbia and in some of the outlying counties. They have different programs, may not provide the same level of assistance, but they do offer opportunities. And so we encourage you to learn uh, reach out to uh, organizations like ours, nonprofit organizations such as ours and housing counseling services. Um, there are other nonprofits out here that do the same work we do, so there can always be one near you. And um, they can tell you about the local programs that are available to you to help you make that step to get that home and then keep that home. And they also tell you about the options to make sure you avoid foreclosure, which we do as well. Um, and while I'm thinking about nonprofits, I do want to mention one thing to tie to student loans. I believe there are a couple of student loan options that are available where if you work in a nonprofit for a certain number of years, those student loans could eventually evaporate. Yes. Public service loan forgiveness. This is an option you make. 10 years of consecutive payments, basically 120 payments. And after that time period, your uh, federal debt can be forgiven. Yeah. And I also, I, I know that <clears throat> there were, there are some federal government agencies that depending on the work that you do, um, and and these are some agencies that are alphabet soup agencies, and I'll let you figure that out, that um, they will they will pay off your student loan if if you you know decide to enter certain levels of, of service with them and so there there were all kinds of options but like Ron was just saying Stanley knowledge is power and all of these things whether it has to do with student loan payoff or programs or jobs or housing counseling it's even if everything goes perfectly, it still requires work. Absolutely. Absolutely. It requires work. And, um, you know, just meeting with a counselor or some other you know, person out here who provides services or information is not going to solve the problem. You've got to do the hard work. You've got to be the one to set aside the money or to work through the budget or to pay off the credit card or you've got to do those heavy lifting types of um, things in your life. Um, but the knowledge can help you understand where to put your energies. Okay, uh, for example, um, being aware that another potential obstacle is housing discrimination and mm. knowing that you have rights uh, to avoid dis being discriminated against. And that in D.C. we have uh, 20 different protected classes under which a person could potentially file a fair housing complaint um, and that organizations like ours can help you file that complaint. Um, but you know, we've helped people get into housing where before they couldn't because of a form of discrimination. Um, and so it's it, those kinds of obstacles that can pop up. But if you are armed with the knowledge, then you can hopefully overcome those obstacles. Yeah. Something to think about. Stanley, thank you so much for your phone call. 202-319-7810. Uh, 202-319-7810. Sean calling from Clinton. Sean, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Yes. Regarding this student loan forgiveness, um, I've been trying to get that for 15 years. So I just decided um, for maybe a few months ago, just to refinance and get it done in five years because my, I guess, $50,000 student loan had 
income as much as $80,000 with the 15-year payment. And also, if I did the uh, forgiveness that they just put out, it would have cost me over $100,000 to use that IBR system. So the IBR system is terrible. I would never tell any young person to get involved with that. I would tell them to do the standard only and get a part-time job and work a full-time job and get rid of it. And as far as the housing issue, um, D.C. is very difficult. I've been working with my brother to try to help him find a place. And it just it's just so costly. We've, we've done everything, the IZ and everything. And it's just too costly for, you know, your $15 an hour job. So... You know, it's, you have to educate your young children. You have to educate them in high school. You have to educate them through college about your finances. And don't buy everything. Like you said, it's okay to get an old car, you know. It's okay to, you know, you can, you can get a, a used car that's not more than 10 years old as you move up, you know. And every time you move up, five years or whatever. You know, you don't have to spend as much money as you do. We are, you know, African-Americans, we tend to be huge consumers. And we have to pull that back because it's not, you know, working well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much, Sean. If you, if you can, uh, you know, Dr. Daniels, explain, first of all, what, what is, is IBR, the Income-Based Repayment Plan? So IBR is just... so. What I'll say is when it comes to repaying your federal student debt, there's a lot of different type of income-driven repayment plans that you can you can participate in depending on your financial situation. So what basically happens as you earn more, you typically typically going to pay more. So they're going to look at your adjusted gross income for these various programs, and it's a little bit of a technical term. Uh, but essentially, it's going to depend on your family size, the amount of income you make, and with those things... Your, your, your other general costs with those things in mind, they're going to figure out how much you're gonna, you can afford to pay per month. Now, one thing I would like to, to sort of say is that it traditionally has been very hard for people to get public service loan forgiveness in particular. Uh, the rules have changed in the last year or so, so it should be a little bit easier, I would say, if you had a hard time getting public service loan forgiveness in the past, I would reapply. I would get in contact with the uh, Federal student, uh, student Aid Office and try to figure out what's going on there for your particular circumstance or speak with your loan service provider so you can understand what options are available to you. Um, income-based repayment plans are, are very good for those who, who are making lower levels of income and need some relief to be able to make these payments. Um, I personally will speak from my own experience. I These these programs didn't weren't, weren't uh, helpful for me because of uh, my particular circumstance, but at the same time, they can be very helpful for those who are who have lower levels of income or going through financial hardship. And um, there's plenty I can say about this. I would talk you talk your ear off. But um, what I would say is to you all is uh, definitely look into the programs. Um, there is anxiety that's associated with levels with student debt. And for me personally, I decided to pay my debt off faster. I paid quite a bit of money every single month to get ahead of it, uh, and paid it off within four or five years. Um, is that the right decision for everyone? That depends on your personal circumstance. That depends on the type of job that you're in. Again, if you have public service loan forgiveness after 10 years of working in a for, in, in a nonprofit or public sector job. So if you're a government employee, you work there for 10 years, you make your payments on time. Even if you consolidate, that's, it's still fine. You can still apply for uh, public service loan forgiveness. So it's a great option for those 
who are looking to lower their monthly burdens, which allows you to save for that house, which allows you to pay down that credit card, which allows you to to uh, to afford yourself these other uh, expenses that you would like to pursue. And to me, it's a very important thing that we use all the tools available to us. Um, every tool is not going to work for your particular circumstance, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a bad thing to pursue for yourself. Sean, thank you so much for sharing in the conversation. Uh, 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. Angela calling from Mitchellville. Angela, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Oh, okay. Angela, you can give us a call back uh, if, if you can. Uh, one of the things that when you're talking about the, the intersection of student loans and, and home ownership, Ron, is we've seen in the past during the housing crisis that people have pulled money out of their home to, to improve their home or for debt consolidation. But what about those who may have been able to buy a home while they have student loan debt? Would you recommend that they take money out of the home, take home equity out to pay off the student loan debt? Is that a smart strategy? Every situation is going to be different. Okay, so I won't have a general answer for everybody. Um, the student loans are structured differently. The home mortgages are structured differently. And then, of course, you have their own incomes, which can be very different. And so there's no one answer to, for everybody. But I will say that um, it it's good to sit down with some folks who know, um, who work in these fields in housing or with student loans, um, student loan debt, and work through the numbers. Um, actually take the time to work through the numbers. It may seem arduous, but it's worth your while to do so, to really figure out what's best for you. Um, you have folks also here in D.C. in terms of resources. D.C. does have a student loan ombudsman that works out of the D.C. Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking. And um, they're willing to work with folks. I know they do um, presentations, webinars around the city. And so it's important to use that resource as well. What impact do you believe uh, this this current housing situation has on the perpetuation of of black generational wealth and it's not and i'm asking not just from the perspective of home ownership but also about you know attitudes about you know black generational wealth there are some people as you know who may have the attitude i'm just going to spend it all and have my children work it out mm -hmm. and then you have you know others you know what the houses and lands folks that that we often you know hear about you know in, in the good book who who have a plan not just for their children but for their children's children what what has been your experience in talking to people about this issue um i would say that uh, emotionally people yeah. want to do it and want to be involved and engaged but the reality is it does require one important word that you said in there plan um, if it is your goal in life to pass things on to another generation then you need to plan and think about your own personal circumstances but then at some point in time you need to involve them in that planning so that they know what the purpose is 
and then they can follow through with their end of the bargain as well. You know, because it's a two way street. Uh, you can buy a home and do your best to maintain it and all of that. And when you turn it over to them, what's going to happen? Are yeah, there's prepared? no guarantee that they're going to do what you right. tell them to do right. uh, with the home after you after you've either given it to after you've passed on or what have you. Mm-hmm. You know, you know once you know once that's done, it's done. Right. So, in order to try to ensure that things are done in a way that you think is sound, you want to involve them as early as possible. Um, it, it, when I was a young person, I my father would take me to a business that he was running and I'd be sweeping the floors, learning what's going on, listening to the conversations, the business conversations, hearing the names and the organizations and all these things along the way and learning and starting young. OK, and that puts them in that mindset early on that this is something that I might want to pursue. You know, this has value to me. This has value in this world where um, a home is difficult to achieve for some. And um, and just making sure that they know what it takes you know, when you're paying the bills. Let them know, you know what's going on. You know the reality of that. Uh, we're having a tough time this month because X, Y, Z. You know, or we're ha- we're doing well because we did certain things. You know, we set up certain savings plans and things like that. We put it in a higher interest rate um, account somewhere, or something like that. You know, letting them understand the building blocks that you're using so that they can take those building blocks themselves and use them not only to maintain that foundation that you've built, but to take it even higher another couple of stories, hopefully. You know, you, you spoke about you know, what you did when you were, you know, first looking to, you know, to, to buy that first house and staying at home. And I'm thinking about that in the, the space of black generational wealth where, and the listeners know, you know, I lost, you know, my father and stepmother last year. They had a great big beautiful home right over here in Brookland. And the the biggest issue for us was how do we keep this huge house in the family? Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't going to be just given to a family member. We a family member had to make a per, had to purchase the house at, at at significantly less than what is worth. But let let's just say a a great big old fat chunk of change. And but the the overarching issue from both sides of the family was when people would come up to us and say, gosh, is this house for sale? Yes, but you can't buy it because we are going to keep it in the family. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, that that is one of the things when you're talking about, you know, generational wor- generational wealth and being able to not only be, being able to keep it in the family, but keep it in the family where those family members are responsible parties where we believe that the children the family members that are in the house now they have young children and the same thing that 
that your father did with you, passing on the general generational wealth of knowledge, mm-hmm. that is also going to happen. And so, and, and so, I, I say all of that. You know, you know, Dr. Daniels, when you think about the, you know, the overarching attitudes about, you know, generational wealth, are we still having those kinds of conversations or are these impediments fogging the conversation? Well, one thing I would say that I would like to add to the conversation is I do a lot of research, as, as you already know, on student debt. And mm-hmm. part of my research looks at the contribution of student debt to racial wealth gaps. And one thing that my research finds is that the racial wealth gap, student debt contributes about 3 to 7% to the racial wealth gap when you look across the entirety of the wealth distribution. So I'm lining up folks who are, have low levels of wealth to folks who have very high levels of wealth. So student debt is one of those contributors. And I think this all ties into this discussion of, as you said, financial education, financial literacy, these are all very important discussions, especially when we're talking about in the context of, of, of educational debt, for example. Black households typically have more debt than white households. Black women tend to have more debt than, than most others. And so when you're thinking about the decisions, make, the decisions that you're making to invest in your future, we have to be very mindful, I think, of all of the financial components that come with that. The financial literacy is extremely important. Understanding what your returns are going to be on your investment and your investment yourself. I, again, my research is on, is on educational debt and I consider educational debt to be an investment in one's own self and one's own future, right? So making sure that you're making these decisions that are going to lead you to having long-term prosperity. I know one caller called in and mentioned that they had a colleague that had $200,000 in debt for their mm-hmm. bachelor's degree. Now, depending on what job they're doing, that may or may not be the best uh, use of your funds to support yourself. Maybe you could have gone to another university that was maybe a little bit lower ranked, but still performs really, really well in terms of what income you'll generate. If you if you really want to go to a private school, choose a private school that's really going to work well for you and work well for your career progress. Um, so I think financial education is extremely important. I study financial literacy. I actually did a survey at Howard University looking at the financial economic well-being of students. And again, this is a big part of my research, a big part of the things that I believe lead to financial empowerment, leads to asset growth, leads to net worth growth. These are all the things that I particularly am interested in as a researcher and as an individual. When you talk to students, what do they tell you about their concerns about student loan debt and and their financial viability after undergraduate school? Uh, this com- this conversation comes up a lot. Um, one thing I like to tell my students is you should know what the returns are for your degree. I promote econ because our students have been doing really well lately. Fingers crossed that continues to be the case. Um, but the thing that most students don't know is what's the interest rate on their on their student loan. And I'll never forget this story. This may have been four or five wow, years ago. they don't know. They don't know. And maybe four or five years ago, a student stopped by my office and he, I was asking him about, he was asking me about student loans. I was like, okay, sure. Yeah. You know, please tell me about it. He said, oh, I just took out a loan. I'm not sure what the dollar amount it was, maybe eight to $10,000. And I said to him, I said, um, what's your interest rate? And again, five years ago, interest rates were much lower than what they are today. His interest, his interest rate for that loan was above 10%. And considering that many undergraduate loans are around two to three percent at that time, that's to me very uncomfortable. 
So I think whenever you're borrowing this debt, you should know exactly how much you're borrowing. You should know exactly uh, what your options are because there's lots of different options. Should you get a private debt? Should, should you get a private loan? Should you get a public loan? Should, should it be federal? Should it be subsidized, unsubsidized? Parent Plus, all these things are, you have to think about when you're, when you're taking on these loans. Again, that's that financial literacy component. That's that long-term planning component. That's going to help you, you know, five or six years from now when you have that that job that you're that you're pursuing and, and you're thinking about, okay, I want to buy a house. How do I do that? We have to think about also have these loans that I have to pay off as well. So there's a lot to it. But again, this is where my mind goes. This, these are the type of things that I talk about with my students. What happens if a student defaults on a loan? Uh, so there's two things I want to say. So there's there's a delinquency and there's a default. So what's del- the difference? A delinquency is if you suppose you missed your, your date for paying your student loan, suppose it was due uh, October 20th, you didn't pay it by October 20th, and so now you're delinquent. So after about 90 days, that's going to likely be reported to your credit rating agency, your Equifax, your Experian, your, your TransUnion. Uh, after 270 days, now, now you're going to be, uh, you defaulted on your loans. Once you defaulted on your loans, then what can happen is, you know, basically the loan will come due the bill will become due you have to pay the debt plus the interest that's what you'll, you'll get a, a notification that you need to pay your, your bill also they could garnish your check they could withdraw, they withhold your uh, your tax refund uh, there's there could be legal action that's that's placed against you there's a host of things that unfortunately are very uncomfortable but what I would say is again there are income-based repayment plans income-based repayment plans can potentially make your payment as low as zero dollars. So if you are facing some financial hardship, it's better to, to confront it head on and to actually speak with your loan service provider, actually look at your your options for, for refinancing or not necessarily refinancing a loan, but getting to an income-based plan that's going to allow you to pay that, pay off that loan more effectively. What happens if somebody files bankruptcy? Is it true that student loans cannot be erased by bankruptcy? Student loans can be erased by bankruptcy, but it's just very challenging. You have to, it's a, it's a, it's a legal filing that you have to go through. You have to formally file for bankruptcy. It's not easy, um, but it's, I guess, dispelling the myth. Yes, you can. You can dispatch your student loans with bankruptcy. It's just not very easy to do so. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, scenario here. You've done the work. You didn't go to happy hour um, for a year. You didn't go out and have cigars with the boys for a year. Your your wife. Uh, said that I'm gonna I'm not gonna do we outside for a year. <laughs> okay, we're gonna stay at home and we're going to in our in our one bedroom apartment and save save save. When you get into the house, you have the key, and and it is livable and you can do it yourself and not spend a whole lot of money. But when you look at the long ball, once you're in the house, whether you're a couple or by yourself, what do you recommend that you not do when you're thinking about the the long ball of home ownership? It's easy to fall into a trap of now it's time to treat ourselves. Mm. Um, we outside again. <laughs> <laughs> we're out, we're outside in Jamaica. <laughs> you know, it's it's easy to fall into that trap. Uh, I would say do it to a limited degree. Yes, you want to keep the fun in your life. You know, you want to do all of that, but don't go overboard. 
is the watchword. Don't go overboard with it. Yeah, it's like we've sacrificed all this. Now it's time to reward ourselves. Yeah, but again, don't go overboard. Um, and then the other thing is the big mistake is eventually taking your eye off the ball. Um, just thinking, okay, we've done it. We've achieved our goal. We're done. You know, now we can just do whatever. This isn't the end. This is the beginning. Exactly. Exactly. A home requires maintenance. Uh, I will tell folks that uh, I guarantee you in the, the first 12 months, you're going to have to fix something. Um, Sometimes it's the first <laughs> 12 weeks. It can, happen very, it can happen very quickly in some cases. You'll have to fix something or replace something. And maintenance on a home is a continual process. If you want to maintain that home and keep its value, then that's something you want to stay on top of. Um, and so that's something to keep your eye on. Um, and then, depending on your long-term goals, if you have those good habits, keep them. And then find other ways to use any additional funds. Being, and I mean ways in terms of financial tools that allow you to accrue more, more money. Um, uh, the professor knows about a lot of different options that people can take advantage of that would help them accrue more interest. Um, you know, as we, we talk casually about bonds and things like that, you know, people can come up with other investment vehicles that will allow them to allow, uh, have their savings continue to grow. You know, housing is not the only investment out there. And so I would encourage people to explore those, increase their financial literacy, see if there's something else that they can benefit from, and then um, maintain your financial discipline and then apply those resources, those funds elsewhere to another financial vehicle. And I like what you said earlier, that when you do have children, you need to bring them in mm -hmm. it, it, Early, mm -hmm. you can bring you know bring them in early. Mm -hmm. I, I remember he, he said, "You want to go to McDonald's? You want to go to Target? We can go to McDonald's. We can go to Target, but you can also own them." <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's Don't forget, there's always the lemonade stand. How about know? that? <laughs> that's right. You know, and with these kids these days, they're probably selling hard lemonade. It's five dollars uh, a glass. Anyway, that's not <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Gerald Daniels and Ronald Clarkson. Thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Thank you. That is the day. Daily Drum for this Monday, October 23rd. I'm Harold Fisher. Good night. <laughs>